Before MTV and the internet, we found out about our rock and roll through the pages of Circus, Hit Parader, Cream, Metal Edge, and Kerrang! Magazine. One of the biggest parts of those magazines were, of course, the pictures. Most of the time, those photos that appeared on those pages belonged to none other than Mark Weiss. On this episode of the Grown Up Rock Podcast, we welcome the person that's absolutely responsible for wallpapering my room as a kid, photographer Mark Weiss. Now, crank that shit up. Welcome to Growing Up Rock Podcast, Mark Weiss. What's going on, Mark? Hey, well, I'm doing what the the rock stars do. They, they're promoting their product. It's been a long time coming. Feels good. Love talking to everyone and reaching out. Yeah, so Mark, usually what we do with uh, new people to the show is we'll start at the beginning with a lot of their influences, but that's normally when we're talking to guitar players and singers. With you as a photographer, is there any influences that were big to you at the beginning? I mean, were you an Annie Leibovitz fan? What, what kind of sparked your interest in photos? Well, my influences are the same as the rock stars. Robert Plant, Jimmy Page, Steven Tyler, Kiss. I'm a photographer, but I'm not a technical guy, and I don't study other photography. I like it, and I enjoy photographers that I was got off on was like Bob Bruin's images and Glenn Goldsmith and Mick Rock, like those from the 70s. And then going back a decade, we had uh, Henry Diltz, Jim Marshall that did the Joplin and, and Hendrix type stuff. So it's just we do the same thing it's just every decade has has two or three photographers that kind of captures it and i and i feel i definitely was the top guy in the 80s that captured that decade yeah now so for sunny and myself we're both kind of failed musicians and so we found a way to get into music by doing podcasting and doing other things around music for you, were you ever a failed musician and you decided to go into something else like photography or were you just, you were into photography from the get-go? Well, I think a failed musician would be giving me too much credit because I wasn't even a musician, even though I tried. I had a band when I was 14 called the Mark Weiss Band and we played Hey Joe and uh, Smoke on the Water. And, you know, we tried and everyone was really good except for me. But, you know, of course, just like you guys, I, I wanted to be in a, I wanted to be a rock star. Yeah. So you, you are exactly like us in that way is that uh, neither Sonny nor I had the talent to become a real rock star. So we found other ways to do it. And it sounds like uh, exactly that. We picked up a guitar and we put it down real quick. <laughs> 
Yeah. I mean, I, I didn't even get that far. I, I like, I, I barely even like, you know, tuned it, you know, I just didn't have any musical abilities. I, you know, I gave it a try. I, I didn't have an ear for it and I couldn't uh, remember how to, like, I couldn't learn things because in the book early in my early years, I talk about, I had a motorcycle accident when I was 12 and it really hindered my, my memory to remember things. So unless I had a, like an ear for music, there's no way I could just learn it because I couldn't remember things. But fortunately I didn't have an ear. I had an eye. Yeah. So you talked about being into Robert Plant and Steven Tyler Aerosmith. Was there any particular album or band for you that really flipped the switch for you and made you become like into hard rock and uh, guitar-driven rock and roll? Yeah, actually, there's two. Aerosmith, Toys in the Attic, a couple years after it came out when I was in high school. I just love every song on that album. It just flows. I used to play it day and night.
record I ever bought, uh, maybe a couple years before that, was the first Rush album. I was just like in a record store after going bowling in Strathmore Twin Cinemas in Matawan, New Jersey. And there was a little record store there that we go to. And there was just this album cover and it said Rush in pink letters. It was like the cheesiest cover ever if you look at it today. You know, just these pink letters. It looked like a comic book character. But I was a young kid and I was like 12, 13 years old. And it just attracted me to it. And I just bought it and I took it home and played it. And it just sounded like, you know, I just loved it. I loved the energy of it. It just sounded so like something I never heard before because I never, I never did hear them on the radio or anything. Because at that time I was just listening to AM radio and maybe just getting into FM and, you know, just playing whatever was on the radio. So it was a new sound that I liked and I kind of embraced.
Yeah, right on. Two great albums. Those two albums would definitely do it for a lot of kids back in the day and turn them on to hard rock and uh, metal music. So you got your first camera from your neighbor for cutting grass, as you said in your book. When that was offered up to you, what was it about the camera that attracted you? Because as a kid, if I was looking for money cutting grass, I don't think a camera would have drawn me in. Were you interested in creative things like pictures or artwork while you were growing up? No, I just looked at it as something that might have been worse than money. You know, it's not like my parents took pictures and I was like, oh, wow, that would be cool to do one day. You know, I just saw that camera as like it was worth a million dollars and it was probably only worth a couple hundred. But, you know, he gave me that camera you know, after cutting his lawn for, uh, for the season, you know, so, you know, doing the math, five bucks a cut after like, you know, maybe 12 cuts, that's like under a hundred bucks. I figured it was worth 200. I figured I could hock it or something if I didn't, you know, do anything with it. So you got busted outside the Kiss concert in 77 selling Kiss concert pictures from their previous appearance. During that time frame, did you ever think about trying to get pictures of Kiss without makeup? You mean like a paparazzi kind of thing? Yeah. No, I wasn't. No, I that was. I never even dream of trying to do anything like that. First of all, I I would I didn't have any interest because I wanted Kiss to be those superheroes that you didn't know who they were. That, that mystique, you know. I if someone even said, "Hey, Kiss is going to be at the uh, you know at the bar after the show. Maybe you can go there and sneak and take some pictures." Like I probably wouldn't even have wanted to take my camera. I probably would have just went and checked them out and just say, "Wow, that's them." So you know, it's, it's one of those things that you know you want to kind of leave those rock stars alone. It's like I did a photo shoot in 1984 with Ozzy Osbourne, and we were just going to do some cool rock shots. And I ended up getting him in a bunny outfit kind of as a joke. And after I had the photos, um, I, first of all, I can't believe Ozzy did it, but he did it because he was such a great guy. And he, he kind of like let me do what I wanted. Just we had fun. But even after I took it, I didn't even show them the photos because it's like we can't have Ozzy, the Prince of Darkness, dressing up in a bunny outfit. You know, it wouldn't be right for the fans, even though we did a lot of crazy photo shoots back then. That would have been like too much. And then moving forward 10 years, I sent them to, to Sharon and Ozzy on Easter as a kind of like a joke. And they'd never seen him before. And then they posted him. So then uh, every year since then, you know, Ozzy got out of the, the bunny closet, as we say. <laughs> you know, I was thinking um, nowadays anybody can take pictures with their phone or whatever, but that doesn't make them a photographer. And what happened to me about uh, now it's what, three, four months ago, I saw this amazing show. And I was so enamored with everything that was going on. I forgot to take any pictures. So then I'm looking through your book and I'm like, Mark is seeing David Lee Roth, like doing these kicks and jumping off stage. Like, how are you focused enough to take the picture? Because I'd be like, wow. And then the picture would be gone. How are you staying so focused between the show that's going on and the pictures you got to take? Well, I watch the show through the eyepiece. So I don't, my, my eye doesn't stop from that eyepiece, you know? So I'm watching the show through my camera. Um, that's how I, I enjoy it. I prefer it almost like, you know, cause I, I shot a lot of the same shows and I figured, right, let me just chill out and just watch the show without even taking my camera. And I felt like a fish out of water. I was like, I don't know. I just want to look through that camera, whether I'm taking pictures or not. I need to look through that lens, that glass. It's just something, something sexy about looking through that glass and that lens and capturing this 3d image on a flat ends up being on a piece of paper or in a magazine. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Circus Magazine, a staple in my life. There's absolutely no doubt. I mean, I'm a Bay Area kid that grew up in the mid-80s. So Circus, and I'm a hair metal guy, so Circus was definitely a staple. So you get the job at Circus Magazine. Like, was there other magazine offices you went into and they threw you out? Or 
was Circus it and they own you now or what happens with that? Uh, well, you know, I got arrested at Kiss show. You know, I mean, I didn't like serve time or anything. You know, the judge just said, <laughs> if you want your pictures, if you want your pictures back, come before the judge, you know, and, and uh, I just said, you know, hold on to the pictures. Just don't tell my parents. I was only 17, you know. So then I went to Circus Magazine. I went home and I used to have a subscription and I looked in the magazine. I said, oh, they're in New York. You know, let me just pick up my bring my photos up and just knock on the door. And I did. And it was um, it was a big office in New York City. I was really impressed. And and I just said, you know, I'm Mark. I, you know, I told I told the secretary my story. I got arrested at the concert and I had these pictures and any chance I could, you know, meet with the art director or something. And they said, well, let me uh, let me see, you know, so she came back and said, you know, why don't you just wait here? He's going to be coming out. He's on a deadline now. But if you hang out, you can say hi to him on the way out. Introduce yourself. I'll introduce you. So we did that. I stayed in the office maybe two hours, introduced myself. And I guess he liked my vibe and he offered me to come into his office, which is an amazing feeling. And and then Jerry Rothberg, the editor, actually came in like like maybe 20 minutes later. And then they had a little pep talk with me. And they told me, basically, you know, we like what you're doing, but you need to use Kodachrome film because I was using Ektachrome film without a flash because it's the available light. It's what I, you know, that's really how you should be shooting a concert. But they insisted on Kodachrome with a flash because they liked the, the sweat and the detail on the artist. And, and they, were, they used to make these centerfolds and they wanted it nice and sharp. And I said, OK, well, that makes sense. And then uh, uh, maybe four months later. I had some pictures of Aerosmith from Giant Stadium, which was an outdoor show. I didn't need a flash. I was saving up for a flash, but I didn't have it yet. But it was an outdoor show, so I didn't need a flash. And when I had the pictures, I called up the uh, office and I said, I have some Aerosmith pictures. And, you know, she goes, oh, bring them by, bring them by. Like, we're looking for Aerosmith pictures. And so I dropped them off. And then two months later, 1978, the October issue, the Beatles were on the cover. I went to the newsstand and and there was a, it was a centerfold of Steven Tyler with my name on it. And then there was also a Ted Nugent photo in there from that show. And, and that pretty much, uh, you know, got the ball rolling in my relationship with circus. Then I kind of broke down and, and started getting the flash because I wanted to start getting my picture in there every, every issue. And it was like, there wasn't any outdoor shows. And then I had to start, you know, getting, and then when I'm sneaking my cameras in still, I didn't have like photo passes or anything. I was just kind of like combat mode. Uh, sneak my cameras in, sneaking me in, jumping over the over the railing, breaking apart the seat so I had a space to shoot during the show. So it was a whole technique that I kind of did when I was like 18, 19 years old. Until I got enough under my belt and then Circus hired me to shoot some shows. And uh, then I started getting photo passes. Yeah, and I'm assuming these magazines, I mean, are, are they as competitive as like the newspapers? Like, you know, you're trying to sell stuff to Circus, Faces, Hip Parade or Cream, like, or some are saying, I will take those pictures. We're not taking those. And now you can't use those pictures for another magazine. Like, are, are you kind of selling to everybody at the same time or like, or are they so competitive? They don't want you to work for the other guy. Yeah. Well, circus at the time, I was only 18 when I started, you know, getting photo passes with them, 18, 19. And then, uh, you know, so they would get me photo passes and there wasn't any other magazine that I even cared about. You know, here's this magazine that gave me this break. Why would I even think about looking at any other magazine, which it was the magazine I looked at since I was 12 or 13, you know, my brother had a subscription first and then he was a couple years older. And then, uh, you know, why that's it. That's my world. You know, I started exploring other avenues after, you know, I started having some success. Then I started getting uh, eight photo agencies would say, you know, we see your pictures in there. You want to make money, this and that. But for a good two, three years, Circus would hire me uh, for $125 plus expenses for the film 
and I would shoot the show. They would help me get a photo pass and then they would own the photos. So that way they didn't have to pay me that hundred dollars a photo. They would just use my photos before anyone else's because, you know, they'd save money and they like my photos. So it was a good way for me to get my photographs in a repetitive way and get, make a name for myself and get me access. And that's kind of what I did for the first couple of years. And, and it kind of, and then eventually I started working with cream and then there was a magazine hit freighter and faces and then metal edge. And then there was all these magazines that popped up all over the place. And then I, I kind of just kind of segued myself into like, all right, I'm a freelance now. So, and then I had, it was a departure from circus where I didn't like the direction circus was going because Originally, Circus was kind of like Rolling Stone in the 70s. They had like the one image of the artist. It was usually a portrait photo, which is what I really wanted to do, portraits. And then it turned into, in the, as the 80s progressed in 83, 84, they started using just live shots with Flash, and they were multiple covers because I, I figured that they the multiple covers, they would um, have better reach if it was a Motley and a Rat and Bon Jovi. I just wanted one of my images on the cover. That's mine. And then I wanted it to be a portrait or something, something a little bit different. So I did get that with, with Circus in the beginning. And then when they changed their format, I was looking for other ways, which is when I started working with Faces magazine. And Faces, we were trying to, you know, make it like more like a like old Circus or Rolling Stone uh, with the rockers where we, we would do shoot the, the artist in like a concept. And, you know, so we've done a, a lot of different shoots where it was more conceptual with the rock stars. Yeah, so when you say that Circus owns your photos, does some kind of time limit run out and now you own all your photos again? Or can you continue to use those photos from that time period? What's the deal with that? Uh, well, technically, I probably owned them because I, I don't think I ever really signed a contract or anything like that. Yeah. But they had them in their office, you know, in possession of nine-tenths of the law. <laughs> and, and then uh, late 80s, uh, the magazine, Jerry Rothberg, you know, he, I didn't do assignments for him anymore. I was working with other magazines and they had other people, you know, they, you know, it's, it's a good starting ground for a lot of photographers, yeah. but they had my photos. And I was like, you know, I was always bummed about that. And uh, I was always hope one day I'd get them back, you know, cause if I did a book and whatnot, you know, I, I would love to have those early images. And then in the mid nineties, when the magazine shifted into like more like Nirvana ish bands and not the rock and metal that I was doing, it really started going downhill. And then Jerry actually called me up one day and said, Mark, we're going to be closing up. Why don't you come by and pick up your photos if you want? So, you know, I, I owe that to Jerry, you know, and I'm still in touch with him. He's a, you know, a great guy. I gave him my start. I give him a lot of credit for giving me that talk and, and I owe a lot to him. So I have the pictures back. Like I, I wouldn't have those Ozzy and the Pink Tutu shots in there. And a lot of my other photos, the Van Halen ones, it's in my early years at the convention hall. Uh, with the shot with Eddie backstage, first time I shot him, you know, like those are all sort of shoots that I did. So it's all about building relationships and not uh, burning bridges. Yeah, it sounds like it for sure. Obviously, there's a different set of challenges that comes with getting a live shot versus a studio shot. What are those challenges for you? And do you prefer doing one to the other? Uh, it's a different can of worms. It's a, it's live. It's you go to their place and whatever's there, you capture. You do the best you can. You try to get access backstage. You know after the show, you know, and then you shoot the show and you do crowd photos. Studio is you're in total control. You're the boss. Like you know, it's a, a little more of a power play where you're you can be who you are. When it's a live show, they're the ones that are in control. Those are the, they're the ones. So it's two definitely different elements. And you know, I love both of them. Do you prefer one on the, over the other? I like live because I like 
the spontaneity of it. And it's, it, to me, I don't have to think. When it's a studio shoot, you have to create the ambiance and the environment. And uh, you got to make sure the food's right. You know, it's like you just got to create a place where they feel comfortable. And I like, don't get me wrong, I like that experience, but it's a lot of work. You know, it's, instead of just going to their house or backstage or to their dressing room where they have their food and I can go, wow, I don't, there's a chocolate layer cake and there's some lobster, you know, or whatever, some uh, drink, Jack Daniels. It's like the reverse. So I would say, yeah, I, I do enjoy traveling with the bands and getting down and dirty and partying and all that. And to me, that's not work. The work is when they come to my studio, I have to prepare. I have to make sure everything's perfect. And uh, I have to, they look for me to create an image that they're going to make them sell records. Yeah. It's the difference in you being the host and them being the host, right? So it makes total sense. When you were in the studio, when you had your own studio in New York and you were having bands in, are you were you the type of photographer that played music in the background and set the moods? Was that your thing or they just came in and you shot them and that was that? No, no. You got to create an environment just like you're, you You want to find out what kind of food they like. You, you, you kind of know what kind of music they like because it's usually the same thing I like. Right. And it's not like at that time they didn't have their phones with them. You know, it was just like, uh, you have your records. So I would have a good record collection and it's usually their record collection. Right. So, uh, I don't like to, you know, make it too loud because then they can't hear me talking. And then it's, unless it was a band like a, a poison or a motley crew where they're just totally into it and they don't need much direction, but you know, bands that do need direction, they have to hear me, you know? And sometimes I would, when they want, they insist on the music up loud. I would have like a megaphone and I would just yell into it. Right. Over the years, you shot a ton of bands and artists. Nikki Six made the statement that you fit in with these guys. You did not feel like a suit and tie kind of guy. Besides being a good photographer, what does it take to be in the presence of these bands in sometimes pretty intimate situations and capture what's happening at the time? Just being a pal and being a friend and them, you know, liking your vibe. And it's like, we like the same things, you know, we like girls, we like drugs and we like rock and roll. <laughs> well, that's being upfront and on the level. So yeah. Okay. It's all good. Working with artists sometimes can be a challenge in itself. Some egos, some bad days, some just are done with it at the time. You still have a job to do. How do you approach those situations? Can you give us a story or two about interesting challenges that you had to deal with from uh, an artist or a band? You can feel free to leave the names out to protect the guilty if you wish. Well, I didn't leave it out of my book, so I don't know why I would leave it out on talking to you. <laughs> well, there's a chapter, and there's basically 10 chapters or 11. There's the early years, which is my informative years, and kind of like shows you how I got to where I, I became a photographer of the you know, in the 80s. And then there's a chapter, every chapter has a, a chapter opener with a fan photo from that tour. One of the bands from the tour, there'd be my laminates, any album covers I did, some smaller photos and slides that didn't make the cut. Uh, you know, because of the space of the, you know, I didn't have enough room to put everything in. And then I would uh, open the chapters by name. So there's like, you know, it's kind of rock and roll chapters, you know, like the, there's one chapter, Love in an Elevator. That's where I met my, who was to be my wife. Uh, met her in an elevator uh, on my way to a meeting with Bill Coin from Kiss. And I met her in an elevator. So I call that Love in an Elevator, you know, it has nothing to do with Kiss or that time period, you know, but it's just, you know, cute little antidote. 
so one of my other chapter openers is called uh, Danzig is not amused. And that was uh, Glenn Danzig. And that's probably the only tale in my book where it was a little, uh, well, actually there's maybe two or three that were kind of like on the downside. And that one uh, was just, you know, it wasn't an awful situation. It's just that they didn't let me be the photographer who I wanted to be. They didn't let me have fun with them. You know, uh, long story short, I wasn't really getting what I wanted out of them. And I went up to the band, one left to the right, and I started moving them around with their shoulders because they wouldn't lean forward. And I was trying to, you know, make them look good. And they were just standing there like a brick wall. And so I kind of, I kind of like took them with my hands and I moved them. And that's what I used to do with all the bands, you know, and I used to have fun with it. You know, sometimes I would like whisper in their ear and they'd laugh and stuff. I mean, I knew I was going to do that with them because they're Danzig's this hard ass band. They, you know, they look at you and they want to look mean. But I didn't think that Glenn was going to jump down my throat and say, just take the pictures, don't touch me. And then I just took a few more pictures and I said, all right, we're done. And they loved the photos. It was ended up being the gatefold in the, in their first in his debut album, a solo album, well, called Danzig. But what I found out like the next day was that, you know, when I called up the record company, I said, how'd the band like the photos and uh, this and that? And they go, well, yeah, they like the photos, but uh, they don't like you. I'm like, well, why? What? You know, he goes, well, I told them the story. What happened? I was trying to rack my brain, you know, and uh, I didn't have to rack too hard. I kind of knew in a way what it was. And I told the, the art director and he goes, oh, you shouldn't have touched. You shouldn't have touched Glenn because that was not a good move. I'm like, all right, whatever. And uh, that was it, you know, and supposedly he held a grudge for a good long time because 10 years later, I went to go shoot him in a concert and they scratched my name off the uh, off the guest list for PhotoPass. I'm assuming it was because of that, you know. Wow. And it's interesting because on the other end, you got the Aussies and the Kevin Dubros that look like they're willing to do whatever in front of the camera. Like Ozzy's been really good to you. You got some great shots with Ozzy. Yeah, I mean, I gravitate to artists that like to have fun and like to do things that I like to do and, you know, let me do what I do. And, and, uh, most of them artists in the eighties, they were pretty good about it. Yeah. Of course, Ozzy was a little bit out, out there. I mean, in the early days, he, you know, he was a little bit, had a few more drinks than he, you know, he wasn't like a sober guy then, but he was kind of like a fun drunk, you know, and we'd always have fun, you know, and, uh, he would, you know, you, you have a few drinks, you get a little more creative and, and crazy. So Ozzy was, was a great subject.
Poison. I mean, these guys, they dress the part, you know, and they, they want to look good. You know, they want to look like rock stars and you got to make an effort to do to be rock stars. You know, they, they were influenced by bands in the 70s, you know, like Bowie and Sweet and T-Rex and, you know, Zeppelin. These are all bands with images. And then in the 80s, with the help of MTV, that was like so important to do to do all that. So we kind of like took it to the max in the 80s. And that's why I got so over the top with all the clothes and the hairspray and the makeup. It just happened. Yeah, this, uh, there's this picture of Ozzy when he's in the bed covered up and you see a woman's legs out the other side, kind of like in a blowjob position. We're just assuming that's Sharon, but we'll leave that alone. Um, no, no, Sharon. <laughs> oh, well, that's good. I, I was surprised, like, you know, at the time, like, I, I didn't know that they were intimate, you know, or like we're, you know, boyfriend, girlfriend. And, and when that happened, I was like, all right, they're telling me, all right, now I know. And uh, yeah, they, they weren't shy about it. I talk about it in the book. I think I talk about it in the book that it's Sharon. I, maybe I don't. I don't know. But yeah, it's definitely Sharon. Yeah, I ordered uh, the mega bundle. So it's uh, I'm sure it's coming soon because I was kind of looking through like the pictures and some of, you know, some of the pictures in the book are just amazing and take me back to a, a spot that feels like I'm going back through the magazines I used to have as a kid. But then some of these pictures I've never seen before, and I, I might have missed them. Like, what percentage of this these pictures have, like, never been seen before? Well, most of them haven't been seen, but most of them have been seen other shots from those photo shoots. So, you know, there's probably a, more than a couple handfuls of shots that maybe sessions or things, situations that haven't ever been seen. But, uh, you know, a lot of the photos were, were just seen maybe one time in the 80s and, and put away. Uh, maybe... In the last 10 years, I might have put them on social media, but not in any kind of magazine or publication. You know, there's definitely some out there, but these photos were the cream of the crop. You know, I spent a lot of time, five years, actually seven, but five years strictly on this book, trying to figure it out. Yeah, there's a picture of uh, Metallica and uh, Kirk's holding this like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle magazine, Lars is sticking his tongue out. I was dying laughing at that picture because Cliff totally looks like he doesn't want to be there. There's a couple of pictures of Metallica. I'm like, Cliff is the odd guy in this group. Like the other three look like they want to have fun. Cliff just wants this to be over as soon as possible. Yeah, that was pretty much the case. There's always one in the band that doesn't really care or want to be there or do that. Not all the time, obviously, but, you know, those guys, they weren't posers, but the other guys like to have fun. Cliff, you know, he knew he had to go through the motions. That's that's what makes a band photos, you know, when you look at a photo, that's what makes a good photo, that you make sure you capture all those different emotions from the, all the different people, and, and you put it together, and there's the band. 
Yeah, Mark, you did a really good job with this book. It's pretty amazing. All the photos obviously speak for themselves and take you on this trip down memory lane, so to speak. But the stories in the book, I mean, it's a fairly easy read. You know, the way you've laid it out by years and everything, it really is quite easy to go through the entire book. And like you said, you had these things that separated the years, which is like sort of a collage of all these different tiny pictures that are really cool. I mean, for you, unlike being in one band, if you're a rock star, you were part of many band camps. So you basically saw it all. I'm sure more than once. And these are the quotes that I read throughout the book from various different rock stars here and there is that you were one of them. You lived the rock and roll lifestyle and the bands felt at ease around you. They trusted you. And I think trust is probably a big thing. Can you give us a little bit more detail about that? Because I know that early on when you were growing up as a kid, your dad gave you a few pointers and maybe that played a part in it later on in your life. Uh, well, you know, it's just like you meeting new friends all the time, you know, and you go and like you're the, you're pretty much you're the new kid and you go to a new school and you you look for new friends. Here it's like there's four or five new friends plus the entourage and managers. So you want them to like you. And what my dad always used to tell me, because he was a door to door salesman, he used to sell aluminum siding. He ended up having his own construction business and did really well for himself. But, you know, he started with nothing. Uh, you know, he always told me, just get them to like you, you know, get them to look you in the eyes and just let them connect with them, you know, connect with their, their persona. And it comes through who you are and they like it. They're going to let you in. You know, that's how you make friends. And I was looking to make friends because you had to make friends if you, if you wanted to stand out and you just didn't want to be like, like the other photographers. There were so many photographers that wanted to be the guy that went backstage and went on tour and this and that. But uh, the bands just, we like each other because we like the same music. And like I said, we, li we like doing the same things. And, you know, I would, I would go on a lot of the tours back and forth. Like, I, you know, you, you figure these bands, you know, they go to city to city, you know, for anywhere from three months to a year or sometimes even longer. And, you know, when a new person comes out, they get a little excited. So with me, I would always come out and bring some magazines and show them and then take pictures. So I kind of distract them from their, I'm not going to say like boring life because it wasn't boring, but it's like mundane, you know, it's like, you know, this repetition. And then there's me with my camera and they know once I take the photo, it gets in the magazine. So it's like, it, it was this part of excitement when, you know, when I came out on the road and did some photos, it would like, you know, when you haven't seen someone and then when I got to know them and then I came out like a few weeks later, cause that's what I would do. I would go out for a week, you know, I would, travel on the bus with them too so we live together pretty much wake up and you know do everything else and then you know if i came back like a month later or two months later here i am again so it's like this little bit of uh you know this friend that you see every once in a while so that that happened with all these bands in the 80s it just never stopped it just kept going from month to month to tour to year to kind of carry me through i don't it never stopped you know from the 1980 maybe 82 to 90 two it just didn't stop it just kept you know one thing led to another and then i did an album cover shoot or i i just blinked my eyes and the decade was over yeah so you mentioned earlier in one way or another basically uh, and you alluded to it just now an entire decade of basically sex drugs and rock and roll and 
I'm imagining that probably part of earning a band's trust is sex, drugs, and rock and roll. <laughs> so uh, you had a story in the book that was interesting about Aerosmith. You earned Aerosmith's trust after all these years, and then after the Done With Mears tour, Tim Collins comes in to manage the band and basically cleans house, right? So right. everybody out of the way that had anything to do with Aerosmith before because he was trying to get Aerosmith clean. Do you think that part of the reason that you were gone at that point was that you were in with them from a sex, drugs, and rock and roll uh, standpoint? Yeah, that's definitely the reason. But it was the opposite. I was the young kid. I was. They're the ones that gave me the drugs. You know, it's like. So it's like. Uh, but I. I get it. But like, I was the last person that that didn't give it up until I physically got thrown out of the show after uh, a show when they had with the Scorpions, and that was like the last time I photographed Aerosmith until Tim Collins was fired. So you know, with me, unless the artist tells me we don't want you to shoot or anything like that, or. I want to come in from the, the horse's mouth. So that particular show, I like, I was trying to like, you know, I shot Aerosmith, you know, and Joe Perry when they separated. And that's when I got to really know both of them, you know, separately. And then when they came back for the back in the saddle again tour in 84, I was there shooting a lot of that. And it was great seeing the whole band together. And then they were going to do a, you know, a new record. And, you know, I like, I just going to be great. It's going to be a great, you know, bunch of years to come. And then he got involved. I was trying to get a photo pass and they would never return my calls and always have an excuse. So when I took the opportunity, when they were playing with the Scorpions at an outdoor festival to try to get a photo pass and I didn't get any response. And then I just saw, I took the opportunity because I had an all access laminate from the Scorpions. Uh, they were headliners then. I made myself to go backstage to find Steven and find out what was going on or just to find out if I can shoot the show. So he's like, uh, he goes, yeah, just talk to Tim, you know? And I was like, all right. So then I tried finding Tim and he was kind of, he, he was kind of eyeing me in the corner of his, you know, corner of the, of the, you know, it was the outdoor show. So behind one of the trees, I see Tim like watching me talk to Steven, not looking too happy. And then when I went to try to find Tim to get a photo pass, he wouldn't be there. And, and then it's like minutes before the band went on and I took the liberty to take some photos of Steven before the show and the band, you know, that's what I usually do. And, you know, no one knew there was anything weird going on at that point. And then uh, Tim was, was there and kind of watching me do all this kind of really give me a dirty look. And then I just, I said in front of Tim, I said, Hey, can I have that photo pass? You know? And he's, of course he's not going to say no, uh, but he, he didn't say no. He just said, don't worry. You don't need it. I just I said, okay, no problem. And I just went in to start shooting. And then like after five minutes of me shooting, these big gorilla guys kind of just grabbed me and like kicked me out of the show. I mean, you know, I was there still after Scorpions, but that's when I knew I was in trouble. And then, and then it actually, I wrote a lot of letters, which I still have, you know, like letters, like I trying to figure it out, understanding things, explaining my situation, you know, but they really thought that like, uh, you know, like I was like a drug dealer almost. And that was it. I, when I told the band about it, because a lot of the bands, after they start doing arenas in the next year or two, you know, they, they built themselves back up, which is great. And I guess they owe it to Tim for keeping them on track or whatever. A lot of the bands, like I think like Dawkins and Skid Row, they opened up for them. And I was like their photographer. And I was told that if I go backstage or talk to the band, that I'm going to be kicked out, you know, so don't even bother talking to them. And then I remember one show, Skid Row was opening up. Uh, I think it was might have been Boston on New Year's Eve, and I was with my my fiance, 
and you know having a nice New Year's you know celebration with the skids and and then Stephen popped his head out. I was trying to like you know it was across the uh, the hall and he popped his head out. He goes, hey Mark, how's it going? Come on in. And he looked at me and I said and I didn't even say anything. I just kind of like blew him off like I didn't even like he was a ghost. And he kind of looked at me weird like what's what's wrong with this guy? You know because I didn't want to ruin my night, you know, and, and that it really hurt that kind of stuff. And, uh, and so I waited it out until they fired him. And then I started working with him again, you know, to this day, I'm, you know, very friendly with all the guys. Uh, there was, you know, Joe did a nice interview for the book and Steven is awesome. You know, where if I need something, I call them and if they need something, they call me and, you know, it's just a great relationship from one of my favorite albums from when I was 13, 14 to 45 years later to you know be able to call him up on the phone is pretty cool cool yeah i know you're uh i have known to be a jack daniels fan me too i jokingly sometimes blame slash for holding that stupid jack bottle and all these pictures and then i'm realizing i'm like wait a second mark took some of these pictures so i think i have to jokingly start now blaming mark for me drinking jack right. daniels is that fair yeah <laughs> yeah well i blame I blame Tommy Lee and Mickey Six for my Jack Daniels habit because, as I mentioned in the book, I don't know if you got there yet, uh, but when I was on tour with Ozzy, uh, they opened up, and I already knew them. You know, we're you know I've done photo shoots with them, but uh, I never went on tour on the tour bus and hung out like on the bus and slept on the bunk and all that. And they invited me to uh, you know be with them because again they're trying to you know I'm there and they want to you know they want another person there to break up the monotony of another day travel with the same guy so i was like the new girlfriend you know that went on the bus or they you know so they invited me on and as nikki brought me on the bus tommy lee was sitting in the driver's side and he kind of put his leg out and stopped me and kind of held me back and then nikki started biting my thigh and he just started you know yelling out draw blood draw blood and i was like what do you mean draw blood He's like, draw blood, and he started biting again until I bled a little bit, and he wanted me to bite him back. And it's like, I ain't biting you back, man. It's like, then Tommy had the jacket. He was pouring it down me, my throat because I, I was hurting at this point. So I started uh, getting my taste for Jack at that point. And then uh, eventually I was either going to draw blood or I was going to walk to the next gig because Ozzy already split. So I had to draw blood, and you know. Or the other choice was just to, to drink like three or four bottles of Jack Daniels and then pass out and they would have just tucked me in the bus. So I opted to draw blood. I figured that was the easier option at that point. And I had enough Jack in me where it was, it was kind of fun.
<laughs> I have to tell you, any rock fan would be jealous that you got to be at Moscow Peace Festival, Heron Aid Sessions, Us Festival, Live Aid, PMRC Sessions. Like some of these, for a guy like me and Steven, where this is the bang zone of our musical history, some of these are like, you know, places that we wish we would have been. And I know you talk about some of it in the book, but I'm interested in like, how did you get to the Moscow Peace Festival? Like, was that with Ozzy? Was that with Motley? Who got you there? Oh, no, it was Bon Jovi, you know. Oh, it was Bon Jovi? Yeah, I did everything with Bon Jovi, you know, because, you know, I did the slippery cover and I did their publicity photos. So I was like their photographer pretty much from 1985 on. And when that came about, Doc McGee said, hey, we're taking a trip to Moscow. And this is in the winter. This is six months before it actually happened. And and uh, Rolling Stone needed photos to document it. So they they paid my expenses and I, I got images of the band kind of meet the dignitaries and going to the Olympic Stadium where the uh, show ended up being in the dead of winter with snow and they had the coats. And, you know, we did pictures in Russia, just as you pictured Russia, you know, like cold and, and not how it's going to be in the summer, you know. So we kind of, it was really cold. It was pretty miserable, but the images we got were priceless. Uh, definitely opposite of what we got in the summer where it was nice out and they had beautiful architecture. I mean, it was just two different things. But for me to go there, being the only photographer to go with them in the beginning and that, you know, checking the place out for the first time was like definitely an honor. And to have it in Rolling Stone was even a double honor. And then, uh, you know, going on the plane with them and with all my friends and, you know, Zach was on there and Sebastian from Skid Row. These are two people that I helped get into their, I introduced Ozzy to Zach and, I introduced Sebastian to uh, the Skid Row guys. Not introduced, but, you know, um, I guess you could say introduced, but, you know, a friend of mine saw uh, Zach in a club and then he said, you know, check it out. And same with, and Sebastian was at my wedding and, and, uh, you know, my this same guy, Dave Feld, face we call him, uh, kind of pieced it all together. So see them playing in front of like, you know, however many thousands of people, it was just the real, that, that was my biggest kick, seeing these 19 year old kids where a year earlier they didn't have a clue and to see them perform the way they did. And to like, really, to me, that was my biggest thrill. Yeah. The PMRC, you know, whole thing in rock. And you were talking about the slippery cover. Like you must've been pissed that they were going to change the slippery cover to that gray shit rain thing they did. Yeah. I liked it. I liked the breast shot, you know, it's like, Oh yeah. What guy, what guy wouldn't, you know what I mean? So, but, yeah. uh, you know, it was the PMRC was going on. It was right when it was happening. You know, they didn't want imagery to reflect in the not selling and not being able to be in the forefront in the in the bins and like Walmarts and where they would sell it. And, you know, they'd want the, you know, then they want the parents to be able to buy it for their, their kids. And seeing a pair of breasts on there is not going to be something that they're, they're going to think about buying, putting under the Christmas tree for their 13, 14 year old kid, you know. So yeah, after printing all these album covers, they kind of... Uh, they just scrapped it. And then we were just trying to come up with some other ideas. And the art director came up with an idea of this bar of soap. And we spent like a couple grand on the soap, a grand on the hand model. And to me, it was just a waste price from the beginning. I didn't see anything good to come out of it, but I, I had to go through the motions. It was like this idea that the art director came up with. And, you know, me and John didn't really, we weren't really too thrilled on it, but, you know, we had to do that because uh, we had to do something and we didn't have any other ideas. So, and then uh, if we didn't come up with something within a day, it would have hindered the release of the record and it could have had an effect on how it ended up to be so big, you know, because everything's in this timing. 
and it was slotted. It was ready to go right out. And, uh, and so then John just called me up and he said, I'm coming over. Make sure you have a black plastic bag. And I said, okay. And he came up, he said, pin it to the wall. And I threw some water on it. He said, you know, throw some water on it. And he just wrote slippery when wet with his, with his hand. And, you know, he said, send that to the record company. He didn't want to look at the Polaroid. He said, that's it. Just send it. Done. <laughs> well, wow. Now you're in, you know, you're in magazines. You're talking to these magazine guys and MTV is getting huge, right? 83, 84, 85, 86 MTV is going to the stratosphere. Are these magazine guys worried that magazine sales are going to take a dip because MTV is basically making everything visual for them? No, I think it it helped more than anything because, you know, because now we knew what they look like and the, the bands or the fans, you know, saw this, these cool looking rockers and now they're going to, look for those rockers in the magazine. So I think MTV helped the bands, you know, in magazines. It, it just, everything went hand in hand, photography, videos, because I would take photos at the video shoots as well. So everything was related. It was a visual time. Hey, Mark, there's a couple of places in the book uh, where you kind of leave us hanging. And I wanted to ask you about them. One was during the blaze of glory shoot on top of the mountain you mentioned in there that you stumbled out of your tent. Little did you know that it was almost the end of your career and the end of your life. What was that all about? The only way it would have been the end of my career is if I would have took another step and I would have ended up dead at the bottom of the butte, you know, because I didn't realize it. And I had, you know, a few drinks the night before and I'm going out looking for, cause I wasn't the only one. There was tents scattered around, but not really close to each other. And I was just looking for, you know, a good place to take a piss. And I just walked around and I saw this, I saw this tree over there by the butte or I went there. And then the next day, the next morning when I woke up, I saw that there was only like one tree, you know, or I don't even know if it was a tree. It might've been a rock. And I just went up and I was like, I can't believe that's where I took a piss. And it was like, like a, a foot away from the end of the butte and it was pitch black. I didn't, you know, it's not like we had cell phones and we could see what was going on. And it wasn't like a full moon where we could see anything. So that's what I meant. I was kind of being a little funny, like uh, it was. It could have been the end of my career because I wouldn't have been able to live to tell the tale. Yeah, and the second part was when you moved back to Jersey, you said you found a house that you loved and you were home, uh, but then you said until you moved out a year later, but the, you never went into any detail there. You know, I was, in the, I was a New York City guy. I had a studio, a big studio in New York, and bands would you know, come there when they came into town. I had enough of the city, you know, I was kind of burnt and I always loved the Jersey shore. I was brought up down the Jersey shore, kind of like, by not, you know, right at the Jersey shore, but maybe 15 minutes away. And, and I just wanted to think about, I got married in 87 and it was 1990 and I figured, all right, time to probably have some kids soon, you know, and didn't want to raise them in New York city. So I went, I wanted to try out renting a house and, you know, by the Jersey shore and see if it worked. And, see if I could run my business out of it. So I did. I found a place like right on the water with its own little uh, dock and a two-car garage that I turned into a studio and I, upstairs that I turned into uh, my photos office. So it was nice, uh, you know, enjoyable. And it was really, looking back, it was like the perfect time to do that because, I mean, I didn't, at that point, things were pretty strong and everything. And within like less than a year, everything turned, you know, after Nirvana, you know, put out their record and everything changed and stuff, but it was really good timing for me. It's like I, at the end of that decade, it was time to move out. 
Now, I didn't move out because things were not doing good in New York. I just wanted to change. And it just worked out. So after a year of, you know, and I got bands there, you know, I, you know, bands would be going from Philly to New York. And on the way there, I, I would talk them into coming over. I told them I had a boat and a dock and barbecue and we could do photos. And, you know, they would drive their bus over. And it's funny because, you know, when they got there, they said, all right, where's your boat, man? Let's go for a ride. And, and it was like, a, it's basically a blow up raft with oars. And uh, I always had a chuckle at when I showed them that, you know, whoever would actually ask about it. But uh, it was fun. We, I did it for a year. It was working. And then I bought we bought a house, a year, like I said, a year later uh, near in Rumson nearby. And that's it. That's where I'm still that's where I'm sitting right now. Same place. You know, had a few years later, I had my first kid. He's now 27. And then I had another kid. And now I have a grandson, too. So uh, all good. Look at you, Mark Weiss, settling down. Yeah, right. Let me ask you this, Mark. Back in the day, we had rock stars, rock gods that were on every kid's walls. Over the years, times changed, social media, meet and greets. It seems like, to me anyway, the mystique of being a rock star is kind of gone. Do you think that we'll ever see a rock star made again, or is it basically gone forever? What's your thoughts? There's rock stars out there. Like, uh, you know, like Luke from the Struts, he's a rock star, you know, but he's, again, he's like influenced by the same music that I was influenced in. So I think there's a lot of bands out there that are starting to, that have the image of the seventies and then eighties and they're, and they're bringing it. It's, I don't know how popular a lot of them are. I mean, the Struts are doing pretty good. I would think they would have been playing arenas already, but they're not for whatever reason. So maybe, maybe there's not that much uh, demand for, you know, for their music, but, I mean, they've been on a lot of these mainstream shows. Uh, I'm really surprised they're not as big as they, they are. Um, but, you know, they, they have their following. And I'm sure once this pandemic uh, eases up and they find a vaccine and the band starts going back on tour, I'm sure they're going to build themselves right up. People are going to be hungry to go out. And they want to, I think, I think the audience, they want to see Flash. They want to see bands. They want to they want to see a show. You know, it's like, I, that's what I want to do. I want to see a show. I just don't want to see bunch of regular guys going up there playing you know songs yeah right uh are you shooting any of these new bands uh before the pandemic obviously uh yeah i mean it, for me it's any band like i come across that i hear a vibe of or comes across a publicist and they look if they look cool then i'll i'll check out their music and see if they if they are cool you know if the music's good and they have good visuals I'm, then i'm gonna go shoot them you know and you, usually they're bands are starting out which i'm good with you know i'm good with just you know because you can have you get the access really easy uh you don't have to deal with the bull from uh going through managers a lot because they're pretty a lot of these bands are like self-managed uh because they're just kind of getting out there and they really they build up their own career it's like a whole new uh it's not like you get signed by a, a record company and you got the whole team behind you and everything's like you go to city to city and you go on the radio and you do this and you do that now it's like you got your own YouTube channel. You got sites like yourself that can help promote them. So if they're willing to work hard and they have good music and you put it out there, I mean, the fans aren't stupid. They're going to, they like it. They're going to, they're going to buy it and they're going to go, they're going to go see it. Yeah. Now, will we see a um, part two or a second book from you at some point? You'll see a part two, three, four, five, six, seven, you know, all sorts of things. Now my plan now would be, cause I, I really was like, I was planning on, going in a getting a Winnebago and traveling cross country 
and shadowing a lot of the bands that are on tour, you know, and, and going to the going to the show before their show, maybe going on, on some local, you know, classic art radio station and do a gallery book signing yep. and then going to the show, like, you know, Motley Crue and Def Leppard, that tour. And then then uh, then go where Leah Ford is and Whitesnake and Sammy Hager, like going to just travel around like a rock star and do signings and things. So that that was my plan, like right now. And because of the pandemic, that obviously didn't happen. So uh, what I'd like to do is to do another book with just one artist that's possibly going to be on tour. Like Motley would be perfect, you know? Right. And then when they go on tour, I, I could like kind of do a proper book signing tour with both my books. Like right now, I'm just waiting for the guidelines to ease up and where I can go into like the bookstores and signings. It's not going to be the same excitement because of all this stuff, but so, and I want the excitement and interaction with fans, but it's not going to happen until there's a vaccine. So I'm hoping by next summer that uh, I can do that and have two books under my belt. And then a third, you know, I, I feel like I have a, I have a Bon Jovi book, a, a Van Halen book, possibly Guns N' Roses, uh, you know, and so these are all books dedicated, but I really wanted my first book to be about my life and my narrative, which I feel like could be a movie. And that's another idea I have coming uh, but for now, to have fun and kind of fulfill that part of it, I have a uh, a little TV show called The Weiss Guy, and we just I just released my first episode called The Weiss Guy, and it's about these these two guys, Creeper and Jesse, that were uh, fans in the '80s, and they uh, you know used to get in trouble and you know sneak into into concerts and things, and then it's kind of like a cat and mouse game with me back then, and then fast forward to today where. I'm going to a concert. I see meet one of the guys in a restaurant. Try he wants me to get him backstage. So it's like a cat and mouse game. I have Brian from Tesla in this first episode and Chip from Enough's Enough. So it's going to be where I can get some of the, the rock stars today uh, that I've worked with involved, do little cameos, and have these two characters and me be the three focal of this. So there's on my YouTube channel, you know, the decade that rocks. That the first episode is on. There's a trailer floating around and. Yeah, I just put it up like last week, I think. It's only 12 minutes. It's a little short for now, but it's fun, you know? We'll put links to some of this stuff in our show notes for the listeners to go check out for sure. I could see a like a Netflix documentary. I know there's a couple of Netflix documentaries out there now from uh, a couple of different photographers. I think Gruen has a, a documentary out on his uh, career, so I could definitely see something like that for you. Yeah, no doubt. Well, the book is called The Decade That Rocked. Mark Weiss, is there anything we didn't ask you about that you want to tell the listeners about before we let you go? On my site, and in the book, as you'll see, there's um, a chapter opener, and every chapter there's a fan photo from a show. So in 1983, there's these three girls from Def Leppard show. I think one's holding up panties. And every year, like I think 81 has these three kids that are maybe 13. And they all have the Van Halen 81 toured shirt and one's holding, I think one's holding some drumsticks or something. So those are my favorite photos. And I, on my site, The Decade That Rock, if you scroll all the way down, there's a section called Fanatic. And I have like a lot of my fan mail that I had back from the 80s. Because there's a, um, you know, Rob Halford did the forward and Eddie Trunk did the afterward. And right along opposite Eddie's afterward is this fan letter that I got from the eighties. And it just like hits the nail on the head. It almost looks like I wrote it, you know, it's like perfectly said, and I just put it in there. And so just something about the fans I want to connect with again. And more interesting to me is I want to find those people that were in those photos. So I'm putting out feelers and contests 
that if you can identify yourself, like if you're one of those main people, like the, the first one or two people that can like prove that that's them, we'll get a photo from that show. And it's just not a, a little four by six. These are like, you know, big prints that I sell for a thousand dollars signed and everything. And plus the photo of them in there, you know, signed like, an, like it's a piece of art. So that's something I'm, I'm just starting to embrace. So if you go to the decade that rock, Dot com and you scroll down, you'll see it says fanatic. And then if you click on it, you'll see uh, some fan mail from the past. And I'm going to start putting a, a lot more fan photos up there and encourage uh, a little bit more of a participation where you can post your photos when you were at a concert, even if you're not in the photo, you know, in, in the photo and just make it like a blog style thing where I put your ticket stubs in there. So I'm developing that now with um, Melody, who's doing my website. Yeah, and if you're driving along, don't worry. All you got to do is uh, go to the show notes and we'll have all those links in the show notes. So you can just click on the link and it'll take you to Mark's site and you can check all that stuff out. So no worries. That's awesome. Mark, I really, really appreciate your time. I can't tell you enough how many times your art has graced my walls growing up as a kid. I had my walls and my ceiling, by the way, plastered with these pictures over the years. So it's an important piece of rock and roll history. These are the things that keep us young. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate it. Get ready to shuffle, rattle, and roll. Play us out, boys.
Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast, Growing Up Rock, and leave us a review on iTunes. Give us a like and leave us a comment on Facebook at Growing Up Rock. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.